0: Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once told a parable of a wild goose who left his flock as they're flying over this barn in the north. He spotted this this beautiful barnyard populated by tame ducks, and there was an abundance of corn there, which geese just happened to love, and at first he decided, you know, he'll go there and he'll stay and, and feast for an hour, but that hour turned into a day, and that day turned into a week, and that week turned into a month, and that month turned into several months. And the barnyard seemed like, you know, this, this safe and sheltered place. There was an abundance of food, and so the wild, ga- wild goose stayed through the entire summer. But when the fall season came, temperatures started dropping, and his instincts kicked in. He knew what he was supposed to do. He looked up, he sees his old flock heading south, and he decides, okay, this is a good time to rejoin them. And so he spreads his wings, And he finds that he's so heavy and lethargic that he couldn't even make it to the top of the barn. So the wild goose thought to himself, I'll stay here through the winter where there's shelter and where there's plenty of food. And for the next few seasons, every time he would see his old flock and hear them squawking in the sky, he'd get this gleam in his eye and start flapping his wings. But with each passing season, his desire to rejoin them became less and less until finally these wild geese would fly overhead and he just wouldn't even notice anymore. And there's so much temptation for us to do the same, to settle for less than we ought to, and to find comfort in things that anchor us down and hold us captive, preventing us from doing what God designed us to do. For the Christian, the greatest danger in the world is that we would find greater pleasure in creation than we do in the Creator. The greatest danger in all the world is to find what we perceive to be a a true comfort and contentment in something or someone other than Jesus. Because this so easily leads us to live a life that is only half committed to Jesus and half committed to something else. We're going to start our study in the book of Judges today, and I just want to give you guys kind of a brief introduction, Um, but we'll also be covering a good portion of the first chapter. The book of Judges is about what happens when God's people compromise with the world, when they stop reading and obeying God's Word and studying God's Word and how that affects their lives. It's about what happens when God's people stop taking personal holiness Seriously, and instead they turn to idolatry, the idols of the land. Idolatry is actually one of the major themes in this book. It's about how hopelessly corrupt humanity is when God's counsel is no longer sought. And in these senses, this may be one of the most culturally relevant books in the entire Bible. The book of Judges is summed up by the very last verse of the book, which says this. Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. How often do you see that in the world around you? We see that every single day. And that's what this book is about. But it's also a picture of God's sovereign hand restoring a broken and lost creation. It's also a picture of God's unfathomable and incredible grace, patience, and long-suffering with His people. It's a picture of a God whose grace is bigger than we could ever imagine. It's a picture of a God who won't let go. Nobody's exactly sure who wrote, who wrote this book. Uh, It spans multiple generations, starting with the death of Joshua and lasting until the time of the first kings, which was probably sometime around 1200 uh, B.C. And during these years, uh, during the the time span that gets covered in the book of Judges, we see what one commentator calls the Canaanization of Israel. That is, Israel begins to embrace the false gods uh, and the (laughs) idols from the land of Canaan. And instead of Canaan becoming more like Israel... Israel becomes more like Canaan, practicing spiritual pluralism, practicing paganism, practicing idolatry constantly. It was an age in which God's people had the choice of looking to God or embracing the spirit and the religious preferences of the land and of the age. And so this is really a story of what an incredible failure they were as they constantly, repeatedly disobeyed God, choosing instead to do what they felt was right In their own eyes, in our culture, you know, we we talk about following our uh, following our heart. Uh, In their culture, they talked about following their eyes. It's really the same thing either way. And so, as the story progresses, uh, what we'll see is that the judges will become more and more and more wicked and depraved. And you know, there's this sentiment in our culture that the Bible is you know, just kind of this, this book of virtues. Anybody ever heard that? You know, anybody ever heard somebody say, oh, the Bible's just an old book of virtues? But the book of Judges dismisses that theory completely because it's about depraved, dysfunctional, flawed people who are more or less portrayed as the heroes of the story. What do you do when a nation's heroes are ungodly Deeply flawed people. That's one of the questions that this book will answer for us. Now, you may have been taught that, you know, we should be we should be strong like Samson, or we should be willing to sacrifice anything and everything like Jephthah. You know, actually, you, you very rarely hear anybody teach about Jephthah because his story is deeply, deeply disturbing, and it might find uh, teachers might find it difficult to find some moral quality in Jephthah's story uh, to, to morally exemplify him. So if that's the kind of stuff that you've been taught about this book, forget all of it. This is not a collection of moralistic stories. The purpose of this book is not to teach us how to be good or moral. It's to show us how awful, how depraved, how wretched the best of us apart from saving God's saving grace are. You don't want to be like the vast majority of these characters. Samson was disgusting by, by any human standard, totally immoral. And Jephthah, I mean he was so ignorant of God's word that he that he broke God's commandments by sacrificing his own daughter. So this is not about following moral examples. This is not moralism. This is about God's faithfulness to be graceful to his people. When there is no moral example among our leaders to follow. And that brings us to, one of, to some of the main themes of the book that, uh, that we'll see as we study this book, and I want to go over those real quick. Uh, these are the primary themes. The first one is that God <laughs> offers grace to people who do not deserve it. God offers grace to people who do not deserve it. In fact, we might even say that He offers it to people who don't seek it, or to people who won't appreciate it, even after they've been saved by it. In fact, there are really only two judges uh, in, this sto- in this book, whose corruption appears to be minimal, and that's Othniel and Deborah. Everyone else is filled with degenerate, immoral qualities, but there's a reason that this is all part of the story. It's to demonstrate that ultimately the only true Lord and Savior is God. And that if we look to the best of us for somebody to follow and to be like, we're bound for disappointment. So that's our first theme. God offers grace to those who don't deserve it. The second theme that we'll see is that God wants to be the Lord of every area of our lives. Every area. He doesn't want a small part of your life. In fact, He doesn't want a big part of your life. The truth that we'll see throughout the book of Judges is that He wants all of our lives, our entire life, because He wants complete obedience from us. God instructed Israel to take the entire land of Canaan and they compromised. They, they cleaned out part, but then they left part standing. Now, let's not pass judgment too harshly on them, though, because if we're being honest, we all do the same thing in our own hearts. And the book of Judges shows us the kind of instability and consequences that we'll reap when we do that. A third theme that we'll see in the book of Judges is that there is a tension between God's grace and His law. And it sometimes feels like a contradiction when you're talking about law and grace. God wants us to live a certain way. He instructs us to live a certain way because he's holy, right? And he, he wants us to be uh, imitators of himself, according to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. And yet, he makes unconditional promises. I want you to act this way, but I've got some unconditional promises for you. Like, I will be with you always. Let me put it this way, will God bless His people if we're remorseful, or will He only bless us if we obey Him? Will God's holiness negate His promises? Now remember, that this was written long before Jesus walked the face of the earth, and so we find that Judges teaches us that God can maintain His holiness and maintain His unconditional promises. And only the gospel can show us how the tension between these two things can be resolved without God compromising his character or violating his holy nature. So we'll see there is a tension between law and grace. Fourth theme that we'll see, God himself is the only true and faithful Savior. Our greatest need is not to have a moral role model. Our greatest need is to have a firmly grounded, uncompromising, unswerving commitment to Jesus. But we'll see that the flaws and the failures of each of the judges, and they all have them. Some of them are abounding in flaws and failures. They all, in one way or another, point to our need for Jesus in some way. Finally, the final theme that we'll see here is that God is always in charge. God is always in charge, no matter what it might look like on the surface. Because when you look at just the surface sometimes, you're thinking, man, where is God in the middle of all this? You're thinking, He seems to be completely absent, like He's not even noticing this. And it would be easy to look through this book and to see that the people felt the same way. They felt like God had abandoned His people completely, like He was absent. He was busy doing something else or whatever. And there will be some stories in here which will maybe tempt us to be thinking the same thing. Start wondering where God is in the middle of all this. Don't we have the temptation to do the same thing in our own lives? And yet, what we'll see through the book of Judges is that even when things seem the most chaotic, the most out of control, God is present. And He's sovereign. He's working out His purposes in the middle of the chaos. He works out out His purposes through weak, Deeply flawed people, despite their flaws. So with that much of an understanding of the book, and seeing how much time we have left, we better get cracking. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, we'll, we'll start in Judges chapter 1, first couple of verses. We read here, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us among, against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Now, time out for just a second here. We have to understand that there is a figure, of speech, uh, that we'll find throughout this study. Notice that God says that Judah will be the one to go. I have given the land into his hand. But the character Judah, which, whom you'll find in the book of Genesis, toward the end of the book of Genesis... Uh, he died. He, he's long gone. Uh, but in Judah, in Jewish culture, the dead live on in, in some sense through their descendants. And so, when we see uh, when we see somebody uh, God talking to Judah or whoever in the first person tense, uh, it, it is a figure of speech. Uh, we understand it's a reference to that specific tribe or the descendants of that specific person. So the book begins with the death of of Joshua. Of course, the book which precedes this book is is Joshua. Uh, he'd been the leader of Israel since Moses had passed away, and when Moses died, it was crystal clear to everybody who was going to fill his shoes. It was going to be Joshua, uh, because Moses had mentored Joshua for several years, and everyone knew uh, that when Moses' time came, you know, Joshua was the man. But the Bible never tells us about Joshua mentoring anybody to fill his role. Who who did he mentor? As far as we can tell, he didn't really raise up anybody to follow in his shoes. So what does this book start with? It starts with a void in the leadership of Israel, both the, the political leadership and the spiritual leadership. And from there it moves very quickly to a declaration of victory. Before the battle against these pagan people of the land has even been fought, the Lord declares victory. The Lord tells them that He has given the land into the hands of Judah. Now in the, in the margin of your Bible, uh, if you if you've got it with you, write this: Joshua chapter six verse two. Because this is actually a, a kind of a, a repetition of something that we saw back in Joshua chapter six verse two. There we read, and the Lord said to Joshua, "See, I have given Jericho into your hand, with its king and mighty men of valor. Had he done it yet? Well, God had, but had they seen it yet?" No, it hadn't happened, but God had already brought them or had already uh, given them into uh Joshua's hand. so the point is that God is in control. God is in control. the Judahites haven't even removed the first sword from its sheath, and the Lord has already declared the winner. by the way, you know that the Lord does the same thing with our lives today. He ordains who, who's going to hold office in, in government he, he ordains. World leaders, but He also has ordained that nothing can separate us as His people from His love. And it's sometimes going to feel like sin has won the day. And yeah, sometimes sin is going to get the best of us. We're going to have ups and downs and, and valleys and, and mountains. We're going to be all over the place. We'll stumble. We'll fall. We'll fail due to sin. But when the dust settles and we stand before the Lord Jesus one day, He'll finish the work. That he has started in us. Romans chapter 8, verse 30 says, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And if you know about the stages of, uh, of salvation, you know that there's justification, sanctification, and glorification. And He skips sanctification there. He goes straight from justification to glorification. Why? Because once we're justified, our glorification is as good as done. That's why Paul writes it in the past tense. You know, if you, if you get on an airplane, for example, the, the moment that, they, uh, that you, you step inside the airplane and, and they lock the door and pull away from the gate, your arrival at your destination is, for the most part, good, good as done. Now I know the planes can be diverted. Uh, planes can have problems with the engine uh, that force the plane to return back to the gate before it takes off. But there are no such mishaps with God. No such mishaps with God. Once we step foot on that plane, the door is sealed shut and our safe arrival at the destination is guaranteed. But let me put a P.S. on there. Buckle up. Because there's going to be some turbulence. It's going to be a bumpy flight. So God ordains the victory because he's in control. And the battle is ultimately his. So far, so good, right? But your captain comes on over the intercom and says, we've got some turbulence ahead. Buckle up. Let's continue. Verse 3. And Judah said to Simeon, again, these are tribes talking to each other, and Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites and likewise, and I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Where, where was that in God's instructions? It wasn't. This is a, a faithless, faithless move on Judah's part. God says, go get them Judah, I've got it for you, you're you're in, it's yours, I've already declared it, I've already delivered them into your hands, and they say, great, we better call in some backup just in case God is wrong. Mm. What was Judah's sin? Compromise. Compromise. God sent them in, he promised them victory, and they didn't trust him. And so they compromised. They went in, but not the way that God had instructed them. Let me ask you this. Let's say you, you tell your, your, your son to take out the garbage, and he brings it to the front door. Is that taking out the garbage? Well, I took it out of the trash can, maybe. you know It's not taking out the trash. It's compromise. They went in, but not the way God had specifically told them to. Now, why would they compromise like that? Because they didn't trust in God. They didn't trust in the promises of God. At this point, Judah was actually the largest tribe in Israel. And so bringing in the Simeonites, who were one of the smallest tribes in Israel, didn't give them any kind of military advantage necessarily. There's one central message throughout the entire Bible, friends, and that's this trust in God, have faith in God. And that means that we have to trust Him to carry through on His promises, even when maybe on the surface it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us at the time. You see, God wanted Judah's full trust in His faithfulness to be central to their victory. But by only partially obeying God's instructions, Judah reveals that they don't trust in God's faithfulness. And by the way, a second thing that they're doing... They're taking the glory away from God. They're saying, well, you know, God told us to do this, but we added the extra step. And so really, you know, it was God and us. And so this book starts with Israel demonstrating this man-centered independence rather than a God-centered trust. Now let's take a minute to look at the promises that God had made to Joshua. Remember, this is the previous book. This is less than a generation prior And God made this promise to Israel through Joshua. Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. We read this. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law of Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. And then you will have good success so right off the bat judah shows us that they don't believe that god will never leave them or forsake them they don't believe that nobody can stand against them if god is on their side and as a result they don't demonstrate the strength or the courage that faith in god would give them in battle God told Joshua never to turn to the right or to the left. That is, never to waver in their trust, never to waver in their faith, and to dwell and meditate on God's Word constantly. And in return, God promises them prosperity and success. A little side note, by the way. This is the Mosaic covenant that was made between whom? God and Israel. God and Israel only. This is a covenant that was only between them. So keep in mind that God is not promising us riches. He's not promising us material wealth or material success in exchange for our faithfulness to Him. Do some people interpret it this way? Yes. My question for them is this. How are you doing in upholding the law of Moses? How are you doing with those 613 commands? The fact is that none of us can be made righteous by upholding the law. We all fall short. The purpose of the law was not to achieve righteousness. That's why Paul wrote, if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Galatians chapter 2 verse 21. So this is this is something this is a covenant strictly between God and Israel. And all they had to do was be faithful and they would prosper. Judah has a compromised and a compromising faith. They didn't take God at His word. They didn't believe that God could do what He said He would do. Now what do you think God God is going to do in response to this half-obedience, half-disobedience? Is He going to punish them by handing them over to the Canaanites? No, actually what we're going to see is that He keeps His promise despite Judah's compromised faith. Let's continue, verses 4-6. to Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites... Into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. So apparently, the leader of the opposition was this man named Adonai Bezek, and his name probably tells us everything that we need to know about him. It means the Lord of Bezek. Uh, maybe the land was named after him, maybe he was named after the land, we don't know, but this man may have been considered some type of deity, some type of of God. But he flees when they come in, and after chasing after him, they catch him, and what do they do with him? Let's back up. Don't answer that question yet. What were they supposed to do to him? What should they have done with him? We find the answer in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verses 22 to 24, we read this. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you, little by little, and he will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. But rather than destroying this king, they just maim him, they mutilate him. They, they think, oh, you know, we don't need to kill him, we can just. Maim him. We, we can cut off his thumbs and cut off his big toes. And again, they've disobeyed God. They've, they've ignored his word, what it clearly instructs, what Joshua clearly said. Yeah, don't, don't depart to the left or to the right from God's word. See, so they've, they've dealt with this king as, as they see fit, but not in accordance with God's instructions. Do you know what we're really doing when we ignore God's word and we do things our own way instead? We're making me our own God. We're making us our own gods. We exalt ourselves over God. And that's what Judah and Simeon... Simeon's in there. He doesn't get mentioned a whole lot here, but he's doing it too. He's exalted. They're both exalting themselves over God. Instead of being faithful to God's Word and destroying Adonai Bezek... They cut off his big toes and his thumbs. This is a move which, by the way, would render him powerless as a king and powerless as a warrior. Without big toes, he can't run. Uh, You won't get away from us again. Without thumbs, he wouldn't be able to hold a sword. So as a king, he's useless. As a warrior, he's useless. Let's continue. Verses 7 and 8. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. See, the Judahites were commanded to crush the enemy, and instead they decided to just cripple the enemy. Can I I just say this? Partial obedience. And I think if you're a parent, you know this. Kids, you'll, you'll know it someday too. Partial obedience is the same as disobedience. Partial obedience is the same as disobedience. It's very difficult to possess godly courage without also possessing, unswerving, uncompromising faith in God. Amen. And this is going to cost the Jews dearly in the days ahead, as we'll see. You know what, what's kind of funny, though? When you think about what's going on here, You know, these days you hear these scholars and and atheists and you know, whatever you want to call them, get all bent out, of, bent out of shape about how God sent the Israelites into the land to take it over to conquer to eliminate the enemy completely. We've all you know, watched the History Channel and they talk about how immoral God was to do this. But, but here's, here's the, the funny part. You know, while, while they'll say that God is being immoral or unjust, Adonai Bezek was less offended by it than, than these modern scholars and atheists are. God gives people over to the choices that they have made. That's what we see in Romans chapter 1 where God hands people over to their sin and hands them over to their sin again and again. And yet people have such a hard time accepting the fact that God would do that. And they say, oh, God is so unjust. God is so immoral. How How could He do this kind of thing? But apparently this king, Adonai Bezek, doesn't have a hard time accepting that at all. He says... I've done the same thing to 70 others, so it's fitting that I would get the same thing. Wow! Crazy. So the Judahites and the Simeonites captured Jerusalem. Let's continue, verses 8 to 11. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev, in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shashai and Ahiman at Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. Man, there are some crazy names in there. I know, but don't let that distract you from what's going on here. You know, we, we might be wondering, by the way, where, where have the Simeonites gone? Because they're they're not even mentioned here. Like I said, they are still part of the story. They, they are there. Look, uh, they're, they're tagging along. Look at verse uh, verses 17 to 18. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephoth and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And so basically between these, these two passages, what we have is a record of all the victories that the Judahites and the Simeonites had together. But between these two records, the author focuses in. He kind of zooms in on one specific person, one specific family that appears to have a healthy dose of godly faith and courage. The family of Caleb. I told Caleb that I was preaching about Caleb today. The family of Caleb, the author zooms in on him. Caleb, we, we remember him from uh, you know when he was a friend of Joshua and, and they had been a party of 12 people who went in to look at the land of Canaan to scout out the land and to come back and, and report. And, uh, and Joshua and Caleb had said, let's, let's go, we can take these people. But everybody else said, oh, we don't want to go against the giants of the land. These other 10 men in their scouting party had been faithless and, and, and fearful. And we see here that Caleb... To the end, he's an old man. Joshua just died. He's an old man. But to the end of his life, he's a faithful man. Let's look at verses 12 to 16. See how the author zooms in here. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath sephir and captures it, I will give him Aksah, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksah, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Canaanite, Moses' father-in-law, went up, with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. Now, when we read about Caleb sending somebody after this, this leader, this king, it might sound to us like, wow, that, that's just brutal, that, that's barbaric. But do not miss what lies at the heart of Caleb's request or his, his offer to people. Faithful obedience to God. That's really what Caleb is reflecting. Faithful obedience to God. Caleb is a picture of what all of Israel was supposed to have been if only everybody could have been like Caleb. What they could have been if only they would have had the faith of Caleb. And I I happen to like the name Caleb a lot, by the way, in case you, you didn't guess. Caleb is offering his daughter to... A man who is like himself. This is, this is why he's making this reward and why he's making this request. He's looking for a man who is like himself. Somebody who's willing to be obedient to exactly what God has commanded. And Maddie, that's why I say you can't marry somebody who loves Jesus less than I do. <laughs> and Caleb's faith is reflected in his daughter, Axah. Axel has this desire to enjoy the blessings of the land in accordance with the promises that God has made. Now hold on to to Othniel, her her husband, because we'll come back to him in a couple weeks. He's one of only two judges in the entire book who seem to have an uncompromising uh, faith in God. Deborah is the other. So Caleb, Othniel, and Axel are put in the middle of this Text In the middle of this passage, to give us a contrast to the rest of Israel, in this book we'll see that the most unlikely of people are the people that God will often use, because they're the people who are uncompromisingly committed to faithful obedience. And in this case, the greatest faith comes from this old, beat-up, worn-down warrior, a woman, and a Kenite. Who are the Kenites. They're outsiders. They're not one of the 12 tribes. Who who would have picked these three to be the three that represent complete faithfulness to God? They don't seem like obvious choices, but that's how God works throughout the book of Judges, and He works that way today as well. God's grace still finds its way into the hearts of those who seem the least deserving and who may seem at some point in their life to be the least likely to want it. But it'll find, it'll find its way into their hearts anyway. Now, if we were just to end the chapter right here, it it would be a big upswing. Wow, you know, they've they've had all these victories. And, you know, here's here's Caleb and Othniel and and Axon, they're so faithful. But things are about to get shaken up. I hope you're buckled into your seatbelt. Verses 19 to 21. We read this and the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said. And he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now how is it how is it that God is with Judah? He's behind them. He's, he's giving them strength. And yet they're unable to drive out the inhabitants of the land because they had chariots of iron? I mean, come on, God versus chariots of iron. It seems like a no-brainer, right? It, it, it's because Judah's weakness finally comes to the surface. They're in the fire, and suddenly, oh, look Look what comes to the surface. Oh, that weakness of faith that you've had since the beginning. Here it is. Faithlessness. They don't trust in God. Let's be honest. They haven't trusted in God all along in this book. They've trusted in themselves. They don't trust in God's promises. They don't trust in God's strength. They trust in their own strength, their own might, which is finally revealed to be No strength at all. And so they look at these iron chariots and they say, oh, iron chariots. We only have wooden chariots. There's no way for us to win here. They're looking at the situation rather than looking at God. And so they measure their military strength against the military strength of their adversaries and they burn up as fast as a dry leaf in a fireplace. Strong faith is revealed in difficult circumstances and situations, but you know what? So is weak faith. So is weak faith. And so Caleb, here's another contrast. Caleb is this old man, and he drives out the three sons of Anak. This old man against these three guys who were in their, their prime as warriors, probably. But he's got something that they don't, and he's got something that the Judahites don't, and the Simeonites <laughs> and the rest of Israel apparently don't. He's got faithful obedience to God. And so we see that he prospers while the other Israelites are forced to share the land that they had been promised with the Jebusites and with the other Canaanites who are going to be a thorn in their side for generations to come. The lesson here in, the, in this first passage, friends, is that our lack of strength is not what prevents us from enjoying God's blessings in our lives. And our lack of strength is not what prevents us from worshiping God with all of our hearts. Rather, what prevents us from doing all these things is a lack of trust in God's strength and God's promises. It's so tempting to, to, to look at things just on the surface and, and to, to just rely on ourselves, like God is plan B. Oh, that's a dangerous game plan, because that's, that's what we, you know, because it's what we see. Uh, th- this makes the most sense, so I, I'm going to go in, and God, you, hope you got my back. That what seems to make the most sense on the surface. But when we think that way, instead of making God our plan A, and instead of simply obeying God, being obedient to God, uncompromisingly obedient to God, when we think this other way, where God's our plan B, we make bad decisions. And our weaknesses will eventually be revealed. So Caleb cleans out the land with God's strength. He, he's too old for it to make sense any other way. I mean, you've got this guy who's who knows how old. He's well past his prime. And he, he, he beats Three. There's no other explanation. <laughs> he, he, he's got it because he's, he's got the strength because he's trusting in God to do it. But then the people of Judah decide that the odds against them are too steep because of this iron chariot. I, I've, I've known people who struggled with this so much. How is it that God could be with them and, and, and then they face an iron chariot and God can't overcome an iron chariot? Oh, yes, He can. The Judahites couldn't. But the Judahites aren't trusting in God. He's their plan B. They are their plan A. And so they're unable to clean out the land as they've been instructed. So Judah has a compromised and a compromising faith, which, as we'll see throughout the book of Judges, is no faith at all. Without faith, there is no obedience. And friends, this this first passage, this book, is a call to uncompromising faith and uncompromising obedience to the Lord. We will each face our own proverbial iron chariots and it'll feel like an impossible situation and the temptation will be to do what you can do and to use God as your backup. But this book is going to show us that God needs to be plan A. To walk in his strength, to walk in obedience to him, needs to be our plan A. Jesus said, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Mark 10.15 and the, the point that he's making there is that, you know, a, a child doesn't calculate the odds of their circumstances when it comes to God. You know, they, they just have this simple trust that God is close enough to care about our smallest problems and big enough to handle our, our biggest problems. And that's the type of faith that we're called to. They don't say, hmm, iron chariot or God. Oh, man, that iron chariot, it's us. They say, what's an iron chariot compared to God? because they have this this childlike faith where they they understand that God can take care of our biggest problems and He's close enough to care about our smallest problems. That's the type of faith that Israel was called to. That's the type of faith and obedience that we're called to. Life's battles belong to the Lord. And there's nothing that can separate us from His love and from His will being fulfilled in His people's lives. He's causing all things to work together for the good of the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. And so if he's causing all things to work together for our good, why would he be our plan B? He's got to be our plan A. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to redeem a people for yourself, knowing that we're a people who will struggle to be faithful, we're a people who struggle to be obedient, we'll look to ourselves first and foremost, just by nature, Lord. But you're nevertheless conforming us to the image of your Son. And in the middle of life's struggles, Lord, Lord, we see that you're a God who never lets go, who never gives up on your people, who's promised the end from the beginning. And so, Lord, I pray that our faith you, our trust in you would grow. I pray, Lord, that our obedience to you would grow as our faith grows and that we would see you, Lord, as the center of everything that we do. We thank you, Lord, for this book. We thank you for uh, the lessons that are ahead. And we pray, Lord, that through this we'll be drawn closer to you, that it'll teach us to grow in our faith and obedience. So we thank you for what you're going to do in our lives, Lord, in our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that you would just continue showing us your mercy and your love, that we would be conformed into the image of your Son, Jesus, for your glory. In Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry.